In the shadows of several seemingly peaceful communities in Illinois during the 1970s and early 1980s, an ominous presence lurked, leaving a trail of fear and heartache in its wake. Unsuspecting young women fell victim to a man harboring a dark and sinister secret. This is the story of their courage, resilience, and the relentless pursuit of truth that ultimately exposed the man responsible. Stay tuned as we delve deeper into this haunting story where even the most sinister of criminals can meet an unexpectedly absurd end. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Now, before we go any further, I'd just like to thank Skillshare for sponsoring this video. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for anyone who loves learning and wants to explore their creativity and learn new skills. Invest in yourself and your personal growth. If you have a specific skill that you're trying to learn, Skillshare is the perfect place to start. From videography and editing to criminology, research skills, and more, you can find classes that will match your goals and interests. Without ads interfering with your focus and a variety of premium classes launched every week, it's easy to dedicate a little of your time to learning something new. I personally enjoyed learning along with a program titled Introduction to Criminology Explaining Crime, led by an experienced criminologist. This course really provided some interesting context into criminology and has definitely helped me look at certain aspects of true crime with some fresh perspectives. Now, if learning in English isn't your preference, worry not. Skillshare's platform is now available in French, Spanish, Portuguese, and German. Members can access the entire library of classes with subtitles, and Skillshare is also launching new classes spoken in French, Spanish, Portuguese, and German, so you can enjoy Skillshare in your language of choice. Right now, the first 1,000 people to use the link at the top of the description will get a one-month free trial of Skillshare, so make sure you go grab that before it's gone. And thank you again to Skillshare for sponsoring today's episode and allowing content like this video to continue being made. Now, back to the case. Pamela Mora. Pamela A. Mora was born on Saturday the 24th of October 1959 to parents Louis Mora and Elizabeth Mora, known to her friends and family as just Betty. Pamela had been a junior at the Downers Grove South High School and was described by those who knew her as a quiet, shy girl who had been popular within her own group of friends. Pamela didn't partake in any of the school's extracurricular activities and focused on her studies. She had two brothers, Charles and Patrick, and a sister by the name of Susan. Now, on Tuesday the 13th of January 1976, a friend of Pamela's stopped by her family home in Woodridge, Illinois, just to hang out. The two friends played cards together before deciding to leave at about 8.30pm 
to go to their mutual friend's house. At about 9.45pm that evening, Pamela told her friends that she wanted to walk to a nearby McDonald's, which was located about two-thirds of a mile away, so that she could grab a Coca-Cola beverage. Pamela's friends would never see her again. When Pamela failed to return back to her family home by 11pm, her mother Betty began to panic. Nobody had any idea where she was, and 45 minutes later, at 11.45pm, Betty phoned for the police and reported her daughter Pamela as missing. The following morning, on Wednesday the 14th of January 1976, the Lyle Township Road Commissioner Thomas Passerman had been driving on College Road on the way to work at about 7.25am that morning. Thomas, as he drove, noticed a purse laying near the roadside, causing him to slow his car to a stop. It was then that he noticed the body of a girl on the side of the road. The authorities were immediately contacted. The body had been fully clothed when it had been found, and an initial examination of the remains determined there had been no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. An autopsy was conducted, and it determines that the cause of death for the girl had been death by strangulation. The coroner's report detailed that the strangulation had occurred at about 10.30pm on the same night that Pamela had gone missing, and a positive identification for the remains confirmed them to have been that of 16-year-old Pamela Mora. Horrifically, the coroner determines that the initial reports that she hadn't been sexually assaulted had been incorrect, and that Pamela had been raped. At the time of the initial investigation, the investigators had very few leads to pursue, and as a result, Pamela's case grew cold. 17 years after her murder, the DuPage police force reopened Pamela's case and continued their investigation into her death. Detectives went back through old leads in the case and actually ended up tracing some newer ones, but that was to no avail. Eight years later, in 2001, the DNA profile collected from Pamela's remains were entered into CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System, that is a national database of DNA profiles, all in the hopes of finding a match. But unfortunately, in 2001, when they ran the DNA profile, no hits were returned from the system that linked anyone to the DNA that had been found on Pamela's body. And her case, once more, fell cold. Annette Lazar Annette Lazar had been 20 years old in 1979 when she had been walking over to her friend's house in Aurora, Illinois. As she was walking over to her friend's house, a man pulled over in his car and offered Annette a ride. Annette declined this man's offer, making sure to thank him, though before she could continue on her walk, the man offered her something more marijuana. The man claimed to have a stash of weed at its home and offered to take Annette there to sell her some. Annette actually agreed to this proposition and subsequently got into the car with the man. The pair then drove over to the man's house where they both got out. The man led Annette into the basement of the property where he actually showed her his pet falcon while the song Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues sung from a turntable and the moment the door closed in that basement, Annette felt a gun pressed to the back of her head. Quote, you're not going anywhere, the man coldly told her. The man forced Annette into an adjacent bedroom, and it quickly became clear to Annette that she was horrifically about to be raped. Annette asked the man to take the clip out of his 9mm gun and put it down in exchange for her cooperation. She even began bargaining with the man, telling him that he was her type and that she'd date him, quote, if he was nice, all in an attempt to calm the man down 
and convinced him not to harm her too much. To keep up the ruse, Annette wrote her name and number on a piece of paper and gave it to the man so that he could contact her afterwards. In an interview with NBC Chicago in 2020, Annette said that the man had allowed her to go into the bathroom to quite freshen up, and it was at that point that she realised that there was no running, no escaping. Annette said that she cooperated as best as she could as to get out alive, and that he eventually did put the gun down. The man then raped her before letting her go. She immediately went to the hospital so a rape kit could be conducted. Ultimately, Annette stated that it had been her choice to flatter him and to inflate his ego that saved her life. At the time of the attack, Annette actually reported what had happened to the local police, though the Kane County State's Attorney's Office decided not to proceed with prosecution. The police did actually go over to the man's house, but when they asked the man about what had happened, he just took out that piece of paper that Annette had given him with her name and number on, and he claimed her to have been her, his girlfriend. And the police bought his story. Officially, according to the Aurora police, the case had been, quote, cleared of want of prosecution. In a later interview with ABC7 Chicago, Annette said, I had bruises on my neck. And I even had a red mark where he put the gun to my temple. And they didn't believe me. I just was in shock. I thought they would believe me, you know. And that's why I went to the police to prevent this from happening to anyone else. The police let Annette down in her time of need. And it wouldn't be until much later that her case would be revisited. We will be coming back to this later on in this video. Deborah Colliander. 15 months after the attack that had occurred to Annette Lazar, in June of 1980, Karen Weeks Cosman had been loading her children into the family van when a naked woman came running towards her, frantically asking for help. That naked woman had been 25-year-old Deborah Colliander. Earlier that same June day, Deborah had been locking her bicycle up outside Northgate Shopping Centre in Aurora, when she was approached by a man that she didn't know. This stranger asked Deborah whether she could help him start his car, and Deborah actually initially declined to help the man at first, but ended up agreeing to help when the man explained he just needed her to step on the gas pedal while he worked on the engine. When Deborah got into the car, the man pulled out a sharp weapon and held it to her neck, before driving off with Deborah still in the vehicle. The man took her to his house, where he used a gun to threaten her before raping her taking several nude photographs of her. Eventually, the man fell asleep and Deborah seized the opportunity. Deborah ran out of the house and kept running. She kept running until she reached the home of Karen Weeks Cosman that was about five houses away, completely naked. Karen immediately brought Deborah inside her home, understanding right away the seriousness of the situation, and gave Deborah some clothes so that she could get dressed. Karen also grabbed some paper and a pen so that she could take down every detail that Deborah was telling her so that it could be passed on to the police. Deborah describes her attacker as having amazing, quote, blue eyes to Karen, who promptly jotted it down. Though as Karen finished taking down the detail, something suddenly clicked in her mind. She looked at her daughters and it had clicked for them as well. Deborah's attacker had been a neighbour of the family, a man called Bruce Lindall. Bruce's background. So let me tell you a bit more about this guy, Bruce Everett Lindall. He was born on the 29th of January 1953 in St. Charles, Illinois to his parents Jeremy and Arlene Lindor. They were a middle-class family so they had the funds to provide Bruce with a good education and upbringing. People who knew Bruce growing up and during his teenage years said he was a great friend 
but that he had a bit of a temper. There had been some incidents where he'd started arguments or fights at school, but not much is really known about those incidents. Most of his classmates didn't really remember him that well. He was kind of an under-the-radar type of guy. Despite this, not everyone in his class shared the same neutral opinion about Bruce. Actually, two of his former classmates, Mike Gilbert and Terry Gilbert, Terry Gilbert actually used to be called Terry Cooper, but this is a bit of a side note, Terry Cooper and Mike Gilbert actually fell in love and got married, and I think that's really cute. But anyway, that's why it's uh, Terry Gilbert in this. So they decided to share their experiences with Bruce, in an interview. Well, I wouldn't have thought of him as a serial killer. It just wouldn't have crossed my mind. Now we know different. I wasn't surprised. I'd, I'd had um, one close call with him. Mike mentioned that Bruce was a bit odd, but he never expected him to turn out the way that he did. Terry, on the other hand, stated that she hadn't been surprised as she had actually experienced a near miss with Bruce while they had been in school together. Though Bruce had been a year older than her, she and the other girls at the school knew to keep away from Bruce. She claims that he gave all of them, quotes, the creeps. And then Terry went on to share the chilling story of how she almost became one of Bruce's victims herself. It happened one night while she and some friends had been out at a bowling alley. She had driven her car to the venue, but... Bruce was there at this bowling alley and afterwards he had tried to get her to join him in his car so that he could quote give her a ride home. Terry refused this request and just got into her own car and started the car. In an interview with CBS Chicago, Terry said quote, He had pulled wires on my car so that I couldn't start it. But the old Rambler station wagon parked near the high school did start. I remember him swearing and saying that thing shouldn't have started. So he admitted it. Oh, he admitted it, yeah. Mike now wonders what might have happened if Terry had gotten into Lindahl's car. She could have been one of the victims. Terry further recounted another time that she had witnessed Bruce trying to get a girl into his car in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant, saying in the same interview, quotes, She was yelling that for help. That's when my brother saw her and um, intercepted. He got her away from Bruce. Bruce came after my brother and pulled his coat over his head. So your brother couldn't defend himself? Right. Terry's brother actually ended up receiving 11 stitches in the hospital after the ensuing fight. When Mike was asked about this fight, he said that he believed Terry's brother had actually stopped Bruce from acting on his evil desires and that he had actually prevented a murder. Mike also reveals that one time he, quote, got into Bruce's face about how he would creep on the girls at the school, but Mike didn't go into detail about it. So Bruce was this really, really smart guy at Downers Grove High School, and he graduated in 1971 and decided to go on to college. Fast forward to the mid-70s, and there he was graduating with a degree in electromechanics. And trust me, that's not something anyone could just breeze through. And you know, Bruce did pretty well in his courses and was well-liked by most people at college. After graduating, he worked as an electrician and even took some classes at the Mid-Valley Vocational Center in Caneville as to keep learning. In his free time, he hung out with friends and took part in hobbies like racquetball and parachuting, so some quite extreme hobbies. But things took a turn in December of 1976 when Bruce got arrested for marijuana possession. According to the writer reports of the arrest, Bruce didn't appear to be addicted. And it's important to know that this wasn't his first brush with the law. He'd actually had a few minor run-ins with the law since 1974. 
But he had managed to pay the fines that he received as a result of these run-ins, no problem, thanks to his steady job. Bruce lived in different suburbs around Chicago, and in 1978, he moved to Aurora, Illinois. But here's the thing, nobody in his life knew that starting in 1976, he'd been secretly terrorizing multiple women in the most horrifying ways imaginable. Fast forward again to June of 1980, and Deborah is recounting her attack to Karen and her daughters. She can't shake the memory of her attacker's piercing blue eyes, and that's when it hits Karen like a bolt of lightning. The man who had terrorized Deborah had been lurking in plain sight, just five houses down from her own, a man by the name of Bruce Lindall. Karen made the call to authorities about what happened to Deborah, completely unaware of the sick twist that was about to unfold. Deborah and Karen didn't know it, but Bruce actually had a close ally within the Aurora police force. And as fate would have it, that very officer overheard the dispatcher's call for assistance at Bruce's address. Bruce and this officer friend of his, a man called Dave Torres, had become friends at a skydiving club. They enjoyed hanging out together, playing racquetball, going out for dinner and drinks, and attending parties late into the night. They were so close, in fact, that Dave even sold his house to Bruce back in October of 1979. Now, Dave would later deny that Bruce had ever lived with him, but interestingly, it turns out that the attack on Annette Lazar had happened in the very same house that Dave sold to Bruce, and that happened seven months before the sale went through and was finalized. Police reports and property records confirmed all of these details. So when Dave overheard his bestie's name on the dispatch, he didn't hesitate to go over and warn him. When he got to Bruce's address, he found him naked and asleep. He woke him up telling him, quote, Hey Bruce, we have to talk to you. And shortly thereafter, the other police officers arrived, the police officers who were actually dispatched, and they joined... They joined Dave there at the scene. They started doing their searches and they found a gun at the property alongside nude photographs of Deborah. Subsequently, they arrested Bruce on Monday the 23rd of June 1980. One of the officers actually confiscated the plaque that the police had awarded Bruce for his assistance with a hit-and-run victim two years prior. Bruce was charged with several charges in Kane County, including deviant sexual conduct, rape, and aggravated kidnapping, though he was let out on bond to await trial, which is absolutely absurd to me and just two weeks before deborah was set to testify against bruce she vanished the last time anyone saw deborah was when she was leaving her job at copley hospital in october of 1980 and with deborah missing karen weeks cosman became the only remaining witness so you can bet that she was on edge the police kept a close eye on karen's house and she made sure to talk to the chief of police every single day but get this Bruce would walk his dog in the rain and just stand on the corner, staring at Karen's house. And sometimes he'd even drive by and stop to watch Karen's daughters playing in the yard. It was very, very creepy, and Karen couldn't help but feel threatened by him. What happened next angered me through and through, and I just, I really don't understand it. In March of 1981, the judge on the case just let the case against Bruce go and dismissed it. Since Deborah was missing and couldn't testify, they couldn't legally do anything about it, or so they say. Before Deborah had gone missing, one of Bruce's friends had a concerning conversation with him. Bruce mentions that if Deborah didn't go to the upcoming trial, he'd quote, get out of it. Bruce had also apparently offered a friend of his 
2,000 US dollars, a handgun, pills, and some whiskey to, quote, get rid of her for good. But thankfully, that friend declines his offer. Charles Huber. So just five days after the judge dismissed the case against Bruce, on April 4th, 1981, there was this 18-year-old guy by the name of Charles Huber who had just been hanging out in one of Naperville's shopping districts, just going about his time, enjoying his day. That was when Charles would meet Bruce, who just so happened to have been cruising around in his car in that area. The pair of them got to chatting, and it turned out that they had quite a bit in common. And so the pair of them decided to go have some fun together and go play 10-pin bowling together. Though after a while, Bruce got bored. So Bruce came up with another idea. He invited Charles to go hang out at his girlfriend's place for some drinks. Now, it's important to know that this girlfriend is not really mentioned ever again. And we don't even know if his girlfriend's real or not, or whether she exists or not. I don't know whether Bruce is just saying that to get Charles to trust him more. But whatever the case, Charles was pretty excited about this proposition and happily agreed to join him. The conversation between Charles and Bruce was light as they rode together in the car towards Bruce's girlfriend's apartments. Everything seemed perfectly normal. Little did Charles know that the atmosphere was about to take a dark and unexpected turn. As they arrived at the apartments and walked through the door, Bruce's demeanor changed, and he suddenly began attacking Charles without any warning. In a horrifying escalation, Bruce grabbed a knife and relentlessly stabbed Charles a shocking 28 times. Despite the harrowing circumstances, Charles dug deep and found the strength to fight back, refusing to be defeated without a fight. In the chaos and tension of the altercation, fate intervened in a way nobody could have anticipated. Bruce made a colossal mistake he accidentally stabbed himself in the leg. And this wasn't just a flesh wound, he had struck his femoral artery, a critical blood vessel with life-threatening consequences. As the adrenaline field scene unfolded, both Bruce and Charles fell to the floor, surrounded by an eerie silence that followed the struggle. Bruce rapidly losing blood and facing the grim consequences of his actions, and Charles, who courageously fought back, but heartbreakingly, succumbed to his injuries. Bruce's accidental, self-inflicted stab wound resulted in him bleeding out helplessly and eventually dying, lying next to his last victim. At 28 years old, Bruce Lindahl had already committed a string of murders and rapes, and who knows how many more that were never officially confirmed. It's chilling to think that there might be even more atrocities that were never officially linked to him. But in an incredible twist of fate, it was a victim a decade younger who managed to stop this dangerous serial killer in their final moments preventing him from causing any more harm. Investigation. When the police arrived on the scene after reports of a struggle, they were confronted with a with a with what appeared to be a scene from their nightmares. They launched their investigations into Bruce fully, with his death allowing them to fully dissect his house and ties to several potentially linked crimes. While the police were searching his house, they did come across a number of really unsettling photographs. In these pictures, there were different women and they were all in various stages of undress. The thing that stood out the most to the investigators had been the sheer distress on their faces. Now, among these photographs, there was a picture of a missing 16-year-old girl called Deborah McCall. Deborah McCall had been born on the 30th of March 1963 and had last been seen leaving school on the 6th of November 1979 in Downers Grove, Illinois. Deborah was last seen wearing a beige hooded jacket, a sweater, blue jeans, light brown suede shoes, and a yellow necklace. It was speculated that she might have been kidnapped, assaulted, and tragically even killed by Bruce. 
though no other evidence was discovered to back this up. Deborah McCall is still missing to this day. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding Debbie McCall, then don't hesitate to call plus one eight zero zero eight four three five six seven eight or contact the Downers Grove Police Department in Illinois at plus one six three zero four three four five six zero zero. On the twenty eighth of April nineteen eighty two, an unsuspecting farmer made a chilling discovery in the serene countryside of Oswego Township. There, in a shallow grave, hidden from view, lay the remains of Deborah Colliander, whose life had been tragically cut short. Bruce, the individual widely suspected of being responsible for her murder, had already been dead for over a year prior to this farmer's discovery. Deborah's death was ultimately classified as a homicide, and to this day, dedicated investigators continue to try to unravel the truth, seeking a way to conclusively link Bruce to Deborah's murder and finally bringing closure to her family. An investigator told NBC Chicago, quote, All of the evidence points to Bruce Lindell as the person responsible for Deborah Coriander's murder. Not long after Bruce's death, a couple bought his old house in Aurora, completely unaware of its chilling past. They had no clue that their cozy new home had once been the hideout of a dangerous criminal. As the couple settled in, they discovered hundreds of hidden photographs, and... These weren't just your ordinary photographs or pictures. Each one featured a naked person. They found these images tucked away in the most unexpected places, inside walls, in the corners of the ceiling, beneath floorboards, and even among the basement rafters. It was like unearthing a buried secret with every step. The couple, not realizing the gravity of their discovery, casually just discarded the photographs. Little did they know, these images depicted the dark truth behind Bruce's sinister activities. Detectives eventually caught wind of the photos and managed to recover some of them, and as it turned out, those photographs were determined to have been likely taken by Bruce himself and were used to help identify further potential victims. As of today, the accepted number of probable cases include 12 murders and 9 rapes, though some of these are not fully confirmed closed cases and there is a potential that Bruce has committed even more. Some outlets and agencies draw comparisons between Bruce and Ted Bundy, speculating that Bruce could be involved in over 70 cases of assault and murder across the region, yet, as astounding as it may seem, it is tough to fathom that a single individual could be the mastermind behind so many horrific crimes. Investigations into Bruce continue to this day. As recently as 2019, the investigation into the murder of Pamela Mora whose case we discussed at the start of this video, was looked at more closely. A snapshot prediction of some of the physical characteristics of her killer was made, and this snapshot was used to narrow down suspects, one of whom was Bruce, who made the suspect list based on the murders he was connected to. Investigators then moved on to comparing the killer's DNA to the DNA of Bruce's relatives. Since the popularization of the at-home DNA testing kits, the network of DNA profiles had grown greatly. The DNA of the killer was similar enough to the profiles of some of Bruce's relatives, there was only one step left to confirm the DNA. On the 6th of November 2019, the police exhumed the remains of Bruce Lindall to test his DNA against that of the killer of Pamela Mora, and it was a match. One of the investigators stated that it was a 1 in 1.8 quadrillion match. In January of 2020, around 44 years after her death, Pamela's killer was confirmed to have been Bruce Lindall. The solving of Pamela's case was publicized quite heavily, 
and caught the attention of Annette Lazar, whose case we did also discuss earlier. Annette didn't know the identity of who had raped her until she saw Bruce's face in the news connected to Pamela's case. She had kept the secret of her assault to herself, only telling her family about it when the pictures of Bruce had begun appearing on the news. Her case proved that many other victims could have had a similar story to Annette's and lived, victims who might still come forward. Sergeant Mark Lutz of the Aurora Police said, quote, more victims who lived could be out there. We are getting a lot of tips coming in on the tip line. Annette now lives her life dealing with the trauma of her nightmare encounter with Bruce, saying, quote, I still feel ashamed. I was so naive. I hope my story helps young people realize that their actions can lead to negative consequences. My journey has been a lesson. I know that guardian angels are protecting me. Even as this video goes up, there are several cold cases that have potential links to Bruce still being investigated. I've chosen to omit them from this coverage as to not potentially interfere with ongoing investigations. Whatever the case, the numerous pictures of unconsenting women found in the house have all apparently been analyzed and are still being compared to missing persons cases throughout Illinois. This case has been one that has truly shaken many lives. Bruce, who is suspected of being responsible for 12 deaths and numerous assaults, could easily be named one of the most despised individuals in Illinois. The ongoing investigations, which are honestly giving everyone so much hope, could potentially shed light on even more colder cases. The investigators haven't released the full number of the photographs found at Bruce's home, but some have speculated that there were upwards of 30 different women in the pictures. While that hasn't been officially confirmed, several dedicated investigators from the affected towns have made it clear that they're not giving up on this case. They've even been comparing the DNA that connected Bruce to Pamela's case with other cases involving missing women or unsolved assaults that have DNA evidence on hand. In 2020, CBS Chicago revealed that at least three different county police departments were actively searching for any links between Bruce and their unresolved cases. So let's keep our fingers crossed that they find the answers they're looking for and bring some much-needed closure to the families who have suffered from these horrifying crimes. Anyone with any information about Bruce Lindall or any possible victims is asked to contact the DuPage County State's Attorney's Office tip line at plus one six three zero four zero seven eight one zero seven, or the Lyle Police Department at plus one six three zero two seven one four two five two. If you found today's case interesting, make sure you check out my recent video about five people who vanished while cooking. From the eerie disappearance of Stephanie Stewart in Alberta's remote wilderness to the baffling case of the Fandle siblings in Alaska uncover the cases of five cooks who vanished under puzzling circumstances across North America. What happened to them, and can we uncover the truth behind these mysterious events? Click the end card or the little eye that pops up on the screen now to check it out. A special thank you to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to grab your free trial using the link in the description or the link in the pinned comments. And with that being said, I'll see you in the next case.